Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you for being here. Before we listen to my next guest, I want to ask that if you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel and leave a positive review so we can grow this channel. I've been working really hard for you guys to grow by putting systems in place that bring on guests who are very valuable to you. And I'm just going to be honest, it hasn't been an easy ride. So I would certainly appreciate your support. Also, let me know your thoughts by texting me at 714-294-0269. Again, 714-294-0269. Zero two six nine. Last time, seven one four two nine four zero two six nine. To ask about details and to receive future podcasts directly to your cell phone. Let's continue with the podcast. How's it going? Good. How are you? Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. You own uh, Lead Crunch. You've, you've had you have an extensive background, Olin. Can you take us back to your initial stages in this journey back to when you started, you know, auto semantics or uh, you've been founder of a lot of different companies and you have yeah. an extensive background. So, yeah. So I think, I think it's probably easier just to start with this one. I, I you know, I started it, uh, started or been in the early founding team of eight different companies. So, um, you know, I own a part of Lead Crunch. I'm the founder of Lead Crunch, but there's certainly lots of other owners. We're a venture-backed company. We're, we're owned by institutional investors at this point. So the journey of Lead Crunch actually started uh, with my co-founder and I uh, having invested into another startup uh, that was in the online dating space. And uh, I didn't think I was the right guy to do online dating type stuff and neither did he, but we wanted to make a little bit of money. So we invested into this company and got to know each other through um, how that company was doing poorly. We got to see each other in an adverse situation and I thought he handled it really well. And uh, so I had already formed what would become Lead Crunch and I had already uh, locked down the, some of the technology uh, things. We were gonna actually do something uh, around medical research. So the core technology is about targeting, finding the right targets. And a big problem in medical research is understanding how a metabolic pathway in one area uh, of the body might relate to another. And so we really think of it as targeting research, you know, where, where to focus your efforts. And uh, we actually had a lot of technical success. Um, papers published, uh, $11 million of research going into one of the things that we helped discover, but we couldn't sell it because we had, we had solved a problem that they had no economic value. Um, we were replacing postdoctoral fellowships, and that's basically like slave labor. Uh, medical research is not about discovering new drugs. It's really about publishing papers and getting funding. So we were about to shut the company down and a, a mentor of mine is the former director of DARPA. And he and I were having breakfast and he said, sounds like you've got a really interesting targeting technology. I'm like, yeah, he's like, sell to the military. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. He's like, well, let me show you how. And so we actually sold it to Lockheed Martin wow. uh, to develop uh, next generation target verification and we beat IBM Watson and Palantir, two of the biggest names in AI at the time. Wow. And that kept the lights on. And so we get into the government contracting space and just absolutely hate it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just don't like 
uh, the bureaucracy. It's slow. Um, the technology is about 10 years behind everything else. We wanted to do something that was fast moving and, and where we could really make an impact. And so we started a series of experiments to determine where we could use this targeting technology. And it ranged everything from consumer marketing to legal document discovery to search engine marketing. And we stumbled upon the idea of doing B2B marketing. And in September of 2016, uh, I decided to shut down all of the revenue and bet everything on this one play that we could find and engage lookalike prospects that are just like a customer's best customers to accelerate the buyer's journey. And uh, we went from zero to about 12 million in revenue in about three years. That's really good. Um, and did you, you got funding for that as well? That's where we got funding. We, that's that, that's the only thing we got funding for. We have not everything else I've done has either been bootstrapped uh, uh, or, wow. you know, you know I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, capital efficiency and, you know, business is about uh, solving problems that make money, not just solving problems or not just raising money. So this is the first company you've gotten funded for. What what made you go in that direction? The size of the market is so huge. Um, you know, this is B two B marketing at the low end is one hundred and fifty billion dollars a year in the United States. At the high end, it's seven hundred billion. Uh, part of the challenges how do we define b2b marketing there's lots of ways to look at it uh, but it's a vast market and we are not the only people that have thought that ai would be a really great way to improve b2b marketing and our competitors have all raised lots more money when i say a lot more money um, you know we've had a competitor raise 150 million dollars uh, to get traction that is very similar to our traction Right. So I, I think that, you know, one thing that money buys is the ability to scale and the ability to get to market quickly. So we were much more conservative in, in the way we raised money. We, we waited until we had uh, really good traction. Uh, we were selective in who we raised money from. Uh, our early investors include uh, the inventor and CEO of FICO, uh, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, a, uh, a hedge fund manager. Um, who was very successful. Uh, and our later, when we got to uh, venture funding, we were very thrilled that we got Rally Ventures. Uh, the, the partner that we got from Rally has had 45 outcomes, uh, five or six of which are unicorns, which is just you wow. know, really good. Um, our Series B investor uh, is Grady Burnett, and he was the global head of sales for Facebook. Uh, he took Facebook from about 120 million in revenue to 10.4 billion in, I believe, about four years. So he understands what we're doing because uh, he's taken lookalike marketing. You know, that's what Facebook does. And in many ways, you can think of what we do is we do for businesses what Facebook did for consumer marketing. I love it. I love it. So how do, how does this software work? Because it's something that's very interesting to me. Um, do you, how do you find an ideal client for, for, uh, uh, companies and how do you replicate that over and over? Yeah. So lookalike marketing is different than it's really hard to find a competitor that does what we do. Uh, what we do 
is we take a list of our customers' best customers or their account-based marketing list or any list they give us. Whatever you give us, we're going to find an audience of lookalikes to that list. So we prefer to take your real-life customers, at least 100 of them, and model them. And we'll be able to come up with a theory of how large your market is of companies that are just like your best customers. And then we work with our customers to understand, okay, what is their marketing strategy? How are they going to market? And then we sell campaigns to support that. So we do not license our software. We are not a subscription. We charge on a cost per lead basis. And that really sets us apart from the market because uh, a lot of marketing technology, almost all of it is sold as a subscription. Uh, which is great for the investor because it fits into a model, uh, financial model very easily. But it kind of sucks for the customer because how do you measure the value of a subscription? And for the company, how do you attribute your subscription to a specific value? And we believe that everything is about turning marketing into revenue. And so if we sell it as a lead, That allows our customers to track that lead and compare the conversion rate into a closed win against any other lead they may buy. And if we're converting at a higher rate, we're worth a lot more money. And that's why customers pay us a lot more money is we do convert. Uh, We just got a study back from one of our customers. We're converting seven times higher than their next best source of leads. Wow. Okay. So you guys, you guys convert at a high level. Um, and so how much are you charging per lead? It varies. Uh, not all leads are worth the same. And so we don't do that type of pricing. It really depends upon what we're looking for. Got it. Okay. So it's all, it's all customized. Got yep. it. Okay, cool. Um, do you have like, a, is there like a range of like what you charge, like a certain amount minimum and then maximum? I don't really like to give pricing because whatever I say, someone's going to grab the wrong number and say, you said that on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know, I, I kind of sense that you don't want to give that number. So. Yeah. The better way to look at it is, is that we want our customers to have very high return on investment. So we would much rather charge a little bit less and get a lot more business. Uh, but the main thing is we're trying to break the marketer's addiction to volume. And when people start talking about price, they think about, okay, I can buy lots of leads for very little money per, and I can get all of these leads. And that's actually uh, not the best way to think about marketing. The best way to think about marketing is you're building relationships. And more is not better. You know, deeper is better. More meaningful is better. Because they're people. They're not leads. And so the way we look at it is, what is the conversion rate from top to the bottom of the funnel? What is your current method of nurturing those prospects into qualified opportunities? And that's the way we fit in is it's not uh, a one size fits all. Um, we, we do what we call insertion orders. It's kind of a term of trade, but that insertion order is what we uh, talk to the customer about and what we're going to charge. And, you know, our customers tend to come back, quarter over quarter and spend about 18% more per lead every quarter because they're seeing much higher conversion rates. The beautiful thing about artificial intelligence is it gets smarter the more you use it. 
and it learns the nuances of each individual business. And so the longer you use it, the higher the rate of return. And of course, we're going to charge a little bit more as we go. How did you get your, uh, your first client, uh, you know, initially in, in the first kind of stage of, of your business? It's a great story. Um, our first com- customer was a company called Ebsta, which does a plug-in uh, for Salesforce to connect your Gmail to Salesforce. It's a great product. Uh, we are big Ebsta customers right now. Uh, but their head of sales uh, used us and really saw some incredible lift in conversion rate and wound up joining our company, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend recruiting your customers' best employees. That's, that's, that was kind of uh, the company was based in London. Uh, he was uh, had just moved to San Diego and wanted to work for a local company. And obviously, we still have a great relationship with Epsta. But we got our first customer uh basically uh because i met some met this guy in a cafe wow okay you met him in a cafe yeah after he used your your service or was all, it no before always be selling i would i heard what he did and i said well i've got this little startup and i'd like to prove what it works would you be willing to be uh be our first guinea pig and he said yes and it wow. worked you know that's happened to me too before uh actually i'm working with uh with a guy that's uh that was an employee of a, a customer of mine as well. So, uh, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, don't, don't recommend that. Don't, you don't no, yeah. put your customers. <laughs> and, and early customers are really so valuable and uh, they're almost doing the startup of service because we all screw up in our first customers. Right. And I think that one of the things we've tried to do is build a culture where we embrace that, you know, we, we fall on our own sword and uh, take ownership for it. But we, we had a lot of customers early on that, quite frankly, we didn't do a very good job for. Uh, and that was three years ago. Uh, now we really closely monitor customer retention, revenue retention. What's our rebooking rate? Are customers happy? Um, we've got a largest part of our company is actually the customer success team. And their mandate is to ensure that our leads convert better. So they do a lot of uh, work with our customers to help them uh, optimize campaigns and get the most value for what they're paying for. Gotcha. Okay. And then, uh, okay. So let me, let me ask you a question because this is based on experience I've had with other companies. Um, are you very stringent on your guidelines? Like let's say a customer's, you know, maybe not happy with a specific like rule you put in place. Mm. Do you bend that rule or do you go, no, this is the rule and this is how we have to, uh, it's a great question. I'm interpreting your question is, is how hard are the edges to the box? Yeah. <laughs> if you say, okay, your customer has to fit in this box. It has to be such a, such a size company or yeah. in this industry, yeah. or that industry. And so, you know, we, way we define those edges of the box, most of us think in terms of filters, like industry or size of the company or headcount, so forth. Uh, one of the breakthroughs in our technology is to stop thinking about filters and start thinking about attributes as a, a group of attributes together. Uh, for example, if you say we're only going to sell the companies with 50 or more employees, what about the company that is 48? Are they really so different that you don't yeah. want to sell to them? Uh, maybe what is a better way of looking at it is we're only going to sell to companies, let's say we're a, a uh, in telecommunications, say we've got a, a voicemail product or something like that, something around communications. Uh, 
if you're saying we're only going to sell above 50, what you're really saying is, okay, we want to sell so many boxes and we think 50 is the right number of boxes. But in reality, you might be, your value is really around how many of those 50 people are in high communication roles where that voicemail product is really valuable and maybe only 10 of them are there. Uh, wouldn't it be better just to say, okay, we want to find companies that have at least 10 people that are in high communication roles that need our product. And the way you do that is you think of companies not as a series of filters, but actually as a, what's called an array or a group of attributes that you can measure. So what we do is we put companies into, and when these arrays from an engineering perspective, we call them vectors. Um, and the way you think of a vector is a car, driving along the road is on a vector because it has speed and uh, and and velocity and mass. There's lots of things we can measure around that vector direction. So companies have potentially millions of different vectors. We, we analyze a few thousand. Uh, we have the capacity to measure up to about a million. Uh, but what we're looking for is what is the right fit between a seller and a buyer. So that customer seller fit is really what we look for. And so when you ask us how strict is our box, well, we use our own technology and our box, we look at fit very closely. And that fit for us is really, uh, we know that uh, companies that have sophisticated marketing departments do far better with us than ones that have very simple marketing departments. So very small companies or, or early stage startups are not a good fit for us. Very good fits for us would be like Oracle or Adobe or uh, HP Enterprise. These are very good fit customers for us. What does a sophisticated marketing department look like? What does that look like for you? Yeah, so you know it's a sophisticated marketing department when they have a uh, model that explains and predicts the behavior of how they're how they're generating leads so marketing has a couple different functions one is branding to create brand awareness yeah uh, but ultimately at the end of the day all of marketing is really about creating either shareholder value or revenue and really revenue drives shareholder value so you can just simplify it and say okay marketing to revenue is a really key concept and so how that marketing department sources leads either through advertising or content marketing or all the many different ways of doing it, trade shows, webinars, LinkedIn, whatever. And how do they change that prospect into something that a salesperson can actually make a meaningful sales call to? So that marketing department will be very uh, analytical. Uh, they'll be able to show you their pipeline, uh, their conversion rates, their cost of conversion, the cost of a marketing qualified lead, um, what different channels work. They typically, a sophisticated marketing department will understand they need to have a mix of different marketing methods, that there's not one thing that you just bet the whole farm on. Yeah. All of them will have the maturity to know that all marketing will will decay over time, so they need to constantly be changing and updating. Um, and I think that marketing department will um, be more interested in math than they are colors and art. So I think that they, they, you're seeing a lot of, we're seeing in the B2B space, 
a lot of companies bringing their marketing in-house using less agencies and really becoming more like an extension of the data science team. And that's a great fit for us because they love what we do. Yeah. What are your thoughts on branding? Like what, like modern age branding these days? It's, you know, branding's a tough one to put a number on. Um, you know, we have some, uh, we, we've been growing very rapidly and we've brought in some uh, salespeople from much larger organizations that are really accustomed to a lot of brand support. And I think they've got some really good reasons. They're saying, hey, Lead Crunch needs to focus more on branding. Until now, we really haven't, right? We focus mostly on uh, things that we can measure and, and evaluate the return on investment. I think branding is one of those things where it uh, is strategic and probably is a great way to discover new markets and probably discover new ways of building relationships. Uh, but I'm not a branding expert. Yeah. I'm a demand gen expert. And so I respect the domain. Uh, at the end of the day, I think everything has to drive to shareholder value, which really means driving well, they, they, right, they, the right revenue. Yeah, they both help each other. So yeah. the branding aspect makes the demand uh, lead generation or the lead gen um, more convert at a higher rate. And sure. then the lead gen helps you afford the branding. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, it, it's, you know, it, it's, they're equally as important. It's just a matter of like what stage in the company that, uh, you know, you want to use both of them. Yeah. I think that branding in, in the end is going to go through tremendous transformation the next few years. Yeah. Uh, the privacy, uh, rules around CCPA and GDPR, which are acronyms that basically say, okay, we've got to really respect a uh, person's identity and uh, the, the uh, disappearance of cookies. Um, you know, Google just announced the next couple of years, cookies will go away. So this will make it much more challenging for branding. Uh, the programmatic display ad space will probably be really hit hard. Um, I think that there's some really great companies like the Trade Desk uh, that have some interesting technologies and live ramp uh, that probably will will do fine even in the absence of cookies. But I think that branding will be one of those things we'll see a lot of changes. Um, I don't know. I don't watch broadcast television um, yeah. except for the Super Bowl, and yeah. there I am watching yeah. the commercials because that, yeah. that's branding. But yeah. there's not many Super Bowls in a year, and there's certainly not enough Super Bowl ad space for everyone to do their branding. So I think we're going to see some really interesting experimentation of what's going to work for the next generation of branding when people don't watch television or read newspapers and, um, you know, what's that going to look like? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay. So, you know, when did you start seeing uh, a good amount of growth and what do you attribute your, your initial success to? So three years, 12 million, what do you attribute that success to? And, and when did you see an inflection point in your business? Well, it's, it's almost been a rocket ride. Last year, growth slowed, um, intentionally so. So uh, what takes a company to 1 million is very different than what takes them to 10 million. And that's a really different company that goes to 100 million. And we're trying to go to a billion. So you can <laughs> think of these things as having major inflection points where the structure and composition of the team you're working with is going to change at different inflection points. Uh, we were very fortunate uh, that the initial team at Lead Crunch were all seasoned entrepreneurs um, that had done it before. All of us had both success and failure under our belts. 
So we went from uh, zero to about 2 million in our first year, um, which was pretty quick. And then we went from two to about 8.4 in our second year, and then 8.4 to about uh, just under 12 in our third year. So you can see the growth early on was crazy. Uh, then we went, we slowed down to about 300% year over year growth. And then we uh, went to about, uh, you know, say uh, 40, 40% uh, or so growth after that. So I think that the challenge is, challenges are very different at each, each stage. Um, you ask specifically, what were the biggest challenges early? Well, you have no systems. So creating any system to be able to handle that type of growth is a challenge. Um, I think it, what we did really well is recruiting. I would say that's probably uh, the one superpower that uh, we had that enabled us to really outperform everyone else. It's just we're in a, a non-technology town. Uh, we're in San Diego. Uh, we're one of the fastest growing companies in San Diego. Uh, we pay a little bit above market um, so that if you want to make money, this is a good place to be. Uh, we have very generous um, uh, compensation plans, particularly for our salespeople. And so we really focused on the long term of, okay, how do we create a system that can grow like crazy? And what was interesting is our customer success systems were blowing up, accounting systems were blowing up, the core technology, you know, we went uh, you know, melting down Amazon servers. Uh, when we first started, Amazon gave us a hundred thousand dollar credit to put our technology in their cloud. Boy, they've made a lot of money on that hundred grand. <laughs> we spend a lot of money on Amazon. So um, I think that there's a lot of factors, but really, if you want to simplify it, it comes down to people. Wow. Okay. Um, so zero to two million. That's really great. Like, can you? Can you walk us through that? Um, so you, you got your funding. Is that when you started the company or did you? Uh... Yeah, so we had gotten some seed funding early on. And so to be precise, you know, the first quarter we did about 150,000. That would be October, November, and December of 16. And then in the calendar year 2017, and that's when we did the 2 million. The, the, the very first customers in that first quarter uh, we had one sales guy, uh, plus my co-founder and I. Um, we really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, you know, we I remember times we didn't know what some of the terms of the industry were. Um, but we were delivering leads that people were pretty happy with. And I think what we learned was the state of demand generation is so awful. Um, there's so much misrepresentation. Uh, there's such poor quality. There's such a strong addiction to volume at low cost and low quality that just being different and saying, okay, we're not going to charge you a subscription. You can try us. And if you like us, you'll stay with us. If you don't like us, we want to learn from our failure. That was such a novel approach back in 2016, 2017, that a lot of people would say, sure, here's a test budget, go. And we could get to that 2 million largely on test budgets. And I don't, I've never seen that before in my career where you could find those kind of test budgets. And the beautiful thing about the test budget is it might be a 10 or $20,000 test budget against a $2 million a year spend. And that $2 million will be split up among uh, three or four of the best vendors. And that was really cool for us to discover that. 
How did you convince these these people in the in early stages to 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 work with you? Like, you know, you're a startup and you're trying to get clients initially. Like, what did you say to them? That uh, I, I'm sure you just gave me the answer, but was there anything else that you did that like convinced them? Because it's like you're a startup and you just you're just beginning. You don't have like a brand and you have to get them to purchase. So that's pretty impressive that you did that. But so what 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 uh, would you say to that? What, what did you? What well, the, the short version is, hey, do you want to try AI for demand generation? The longer version was our data science team invented the algorithm that protects your credit card and three billion other credit cards from fraud. And we're applying the same technology we developed for the US military for targeting for businesses to do more effective targeting. You wanna give it a try? And then we had a much longer version after that. But I think the bottom line is, is we're very transparent that, hey, this is new technology. Um, we're credible because we've, we've done this before. Uh, we're taking it from the military, we're commercializing military technology early on. Now the technology has evolved that it no longer looks like what we did for the military. I mean, we've done a lot of uh, evolution of the technology, but th those sales pitches worked. Wow. Okay. And so you, were you using your own uh, technology to, to gain these leads? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, like early on, we couldn't use it because we didn't have enough customers to model. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we've always been trying to, you know, always, <laughs> as, as the micro, Microsoft once said, we eat our own dog food, and it's tasty. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope our technology works better than early Microsoft technology, but I'll certainly take my early Microsoft technology success. I mean, uh, you know, Microsoft is uh, really a remarkable story, and, and we have a lot of respect for them. So I think that. Yeah, that's, of course, we were using our own technology. Did you, eventually, did you start seeing uh, um, bigger companies come in to the, uh, uh, come in as clients as you, as you started to grow? Like, when, when yeah. you, like $2 million, did you start getting noticed by these larger companies or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Larger companies and agencies. Um, you know, we had a, we have phenomenal sales team. And so I think that, you know, we are, uh, we're initially a data science driven company and then we're an engineering driven company. And then we really intentionally became a sales driven company as quickly as we could. And I think that as you grow, there's different parts of the company that are leading, uh, that, that, you know, give you, get you past different inflection points. Uh, but I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, getting an incredible sales team and letting, you know, there's no, AI will never replace the salesperson. Uh, what we believe is AI really augments human decision-making. And of course we apply that to ourselves. So we uh, did as much as we could to support the salespeople to make, make it easier for them to go into large accounts and start closing them. When, uh, <clears throat> You when you started to okay, what was your what was your um, process behind hiring the right salespeople? Are you were you paying them base plus commission or how was how was how are you doing that? Yeah, so that's evolved a lot in the way we think about it. So historically, I, I really believe in base plus commission. I think that you get some very perverse behavior if you don't pay someone a base if you do commission only. 
boy, they're going to bring a lot of things in that don't fit into that box you want to sell to. They'll bring a lot of bad fit deals in. Um, how much you pay on base and commission really depends upon the industry that you're in. Uh, but you know, well, the way we thought about it is let's recruit salespeople from the industry that can teach us. And so we have a culture that really is uh, uh, has two parts, who we are and how we operate. So you can think of it as identity and operating. And our identity is really around getting masterful people. So these are the people that want to be the best in the world at their job. And that means they bring a beginner's mindset to work every day that they want to learn. Right. They have a rage to learn. The second attribute on who we are is purpose. Um, and that purposefulness is really around, not around ourselves individually, but to do something greater than ourselves, something that requires us to work together. And that is to make our customers the winners. In fact, for a long time, we said we want our customers to grow three times faster than their competitors within a year of becoming our customer. Um, and I think that that DNA is very much ingrained in the company. And the last one is autonomy is that is we want to hire people that we don't need to micromanage put positively we want people to find the way to bring out their own mastery find a way for them to get the greatest value out of their own so, talent so essentially you want people that don't need to come to you to solve everything for them Correct. you really want people yeah yeah I've, I've, i want them to come to me and educate me and come to me and contribute to the culture. I don't want people to fit in. I want people to contribute. So we look for diversity, right? So we want people that have uh, what we call intrinsic diversity, different, they're born differently, and extrinsic diversity, meaning that they've made different choices in life. And so um, when we first started, we had more graduate degrees than people on the team. Uh, as we evolved, we realized, wow, you know, the graduate degrees really don't matter. Some of our best performing people didn't study what their graduate degree is in. And so actually, I don't really care if you've got a graduate degree anymore. I don't even really care if you have a degree. Um, I'm quite certain at some point I'm going to be hiring a high school dropout who is a genius that other people won't recognize. Uh, let's play to people's strengths. And that's really core about, especially when you talk to salespeople, you want to find somebody with a lot of talent. And talent is their habits, their skills, their mastery, what they wake up to do every day. And play to their strengths. Don't worry about their weaknesses. There's certainly, do you feel like that talent is, is a born trait? You know, <laughs> nurture versus nature, I think it's both. I think that to be really great, you have to be born with something. But after you do enough work and rehearsal and practice, you can't tell whether it's born or whether it's developed. I think there's nothing that replaces hard work and passion to win. And I think that the greatest people embrace their weaknesses and find a way of using their weaknesses as a strength. And we see that in sports all the time, right? Right. Um, and then you can apply that same lesson from sports into business. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to kind of, uh, I want to go back to when you first began your initial, the, the initial companies you started. So for those companies, was there, I'm, I'm looking for the way when you were really struggling, because you see success now. Oh, okay. and, and, well, and, 
And uh, you see success now and, and people, they tend to look at entrepreneurs and go, wow, that guy, you know, he made it. It was so easy for him. Or, you know, they say things like, I could never do that. Um, but w were there any like major challenges? Like how long did it take you to get to 100,000? How long did it take you to get to a million with your, your initial companies? Oh, early companies. So, you know, my first company I started was an overnight success. Um, we, it, and that's an anomaly. Uh, we were the second in the market and the first in the market sucked. So we were actually able to eat their lunch. <laughs> um, the ones after that uh, were not successful um, because I either uh, didn't work hard enough. Um, you know, I, I think my early success uh, created an arrogance and a disregard for risk that was dangerous. And uh, I basically, at the age of 28, thought I had retired. And by the time I was 38, I was broke. I had lost my money on a bunch of other startups that didn't work as well. Um, some of it had to do with factors that were entirely my fault. And other factors were, were market conditions, such as uh, the, the, the blow up of the market in 2001. Um, so I think that Patterns are things that make us really comfortable. And stories are ones that really make us feel like we understand something. In reality, <laughs> reality is not about fitting a pattern or telling the right story. The reality is, is that you wake up in the morning and you're excited to go to work. You have a clear objective that you want to get done that fits into a larger plan and that you overcome failure. My favorite quote about this is from Winston Churchill who said, success is nothing more than going from failure to failure oh, without the loss of enthusiasm. Yeah, I love that. So yeah. that enthusiasm drives you from failure to failure. And being a successful entrepreneur is really largely about a personality disorder <laughs> where you're willing to go into these situations where you are most likely going to fail it's many, like, many times. Yeah, it's like most uh, most entrepreneurs that go through this journey initially, everyone and their mother is telling them not to to do this. And um, your mother's right. Here, <laughs> listen to your mom. She's right. Now, a lot of us can't listen to our mom because we just got to figure it out on our own. But, you know, um, my wife and I have uh, taken guardianship of four kids. And, uh, you know, do I encourage them to be an entrepreneur? No. If yeah. they could be happy being a doctor or a school teacher or something stable, go do that because that, that's a, probably an easier life. I think most entrepreneurs wind up at the end of the day with less money than their corporate uh, brethren. And I think that, you know, I've got a 17-year-old uh, uh, and she wants to become a teacher. I'm totally supportive of that. That's great. We need teachers. We need a bunch of different people. Uh, having too many entrepreneurs would probably make the world not a very pleasant place. It's not. Uh, your, car pro your, pro your car probably wouldn't start in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I just think that uh, people look online. They look at uh, I had Instagram posts and they think entrepreneurship is this glamorous thing. And it's just extremely difficult. It's... Uh, it's, it's something that can drive people insane. It can, it can, you kind of have to enjoy, you know, being drugged through the mud almost. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I think there's a, there's a, uh, 
masochistic element to it. But I think that, you know, what's, I think the great entrepreneurs have a, have a capacity to look inward and learn from their own mistakes and be very candid with themselves about their weaknesses and strengths and find the right partnerships to overcome their weaknesses. Um, you know, I, I know what my strengths are and I'm very fortunate that my co-founder uh, was somebody that overcame some of my weaknesses. And um, I look at that now throughout, uh, throughout my business and, and where I say, okay, does my CFO have a different strength than I have? He better, because he's a CFO, he's a gatekeeper, I'm the risk taker. We need to be able to have that relationship, to have very candid and tough conversations about what's the risk reward profile for a decision. And if you had two people that thought about it the same way, you'd probably make the wrong decision. You, probably, you guys probably have really contentious conversations usually. <laughs> Maybe. I, I think we have very respectful conversations. Um, I think that contentious would probably be too strong a word. I think that that's one of the challenges with, with learning how to work in a diverse environment is it can easily become contentious. Uh, look at our politics, you know, the, the, the uh, two sides of our political spectrum. Oh, it's a mess, man. Can't, can't, even, talk, can't even talk to each other because there's a lack of respect. There's a, a lack of trust and it becomes very tribal very quickly. That will kill a company. It will absolutely destroy a management team. So I talked about the three elements of who we are, mastery, purpose, and autonomy. The other three elements of how we operate actually address how to get that team to work together. And those are focus, optimism, and trust. Focus is do as few things as possible to hit the objective. Most, many companies fail because they lose focus. They're trying to do too many different things. Just do one thing, get it done and get it right. Optimism, the easiest way for us to think about optimism is optimists build empires, pessimists serve me tea. And I'm not gonna get somebody on the team to serve me tea. I wanna be around people that can have that optimism to go from failure to failure. It's part of the enthusiasm. Yeah. And, and lastly, uh, the hard one to talk about is trust, which is really what I wanted to get to. Trust is one of those words where people say, trust me, don't trust them. <laughs> and that, that's a bad, bad idea. Yeah. Trust, trust is, a, is actually uh, a mathematical concept. It's, it's, it's actually, a, you think of it as a vector. And if you take four attributes and you score them zero to 10, we take capability multiplied by reliability, multiplied by confidence, divided by self-interest. Mm. The optimal score is a thousand. You do what you say you're gonna do, you're reliable, you can actually do it, you're capable. And I believe you when you say you're gonna do, you know, when you actually, we share information, it's something that we do in confidence, divided by self-interest. And zero is a bad number for self-interest because none of us are messiahs. It's really about having enough self-interest that you become predictable, and that number's one. Interesting. Okay. That's how you rate all your employees? Actually, I, I came up with that when I was in uh, grad school, and I started rating everybody, including my wife. And uh, <laughs> I, I did it over time, and what I discovered is, is my trust in my wife kind of varied up and down. I'm like, oh, my God. And I, I shared it with her. Fortunately, my wife is an engineer, and she thought it was hilarious. She thought it was great. 
but yeah, it's something we share with all of our um, team when they are onboarded into the company. It's part of our interview process to talk through that. Um, and it's something where we have a lot of transparency. For instance, the entire company gets uh, a lot of the reports I get so they know where we are as a company and where their team is relative to the rest of the company. And I think that trust is one of those things. You have to be able to have those conversations about um, deeply caring about someone and really speaking the truth. And trust is the currency that allows you to do that. I, I get it. Yeah. Um, you, earlier you said you wouldn't recommend entrepreneurship to your children. Um, Not all the kids. I mean, I think that some kids, some people would really do great with it. Um, so I, I've had two chiefs of staff. Uh, both of them are entrepreneurs. And I'm very fortunate to be a part of the, the first chief of staff has gotten some funding. I'm fortunate to be part of that investor group and very proud of him. The second chief of staff just left us uh, in November. And I'm pretty confident. I hope that he lets me be part of the cap table. I think that he, that both of them will be phenomenally successful. So I think certain people have the right stuff to become an entrepreneur, but that number is like uh, one out of 30, one out of 50, uh, maybe one out of a thousand will actually be successful at it. But you know, there's value in going into it, even if you're not successful, but I don't think it's something where half the population should become entrepreneurs. That, that would be chaos. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you think there's some entrepreneurs that become entrepreneurs that shouldn't be entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think that a lot of them make the news. Um, you know, I think that if you look at the unethical behavior of Thanos or the unethical behavior of, of, of WeWork, um, absolutely. Um, I think that that's probably true in every profession. Um, I think that it's really critical for people to look deep inside them and say, okay, what is my superpower? What am I going to be the best in the world? What am I going to be better at than at least 100,000 other people? Right. And play to that strength and understand what motivates you. And if I think of people are motivated by really a combination of three things. Are they motivated by things or money? Are they motivated by ideas? Or are they motivated by people? And obviously all of us are motivated a little bit by each one, but which one's dominant? And play your superpower to your motivation and be aware of that weakness that you have and make sure that you're in an environment where that weakness is covered by somebody else. And I think if, if that happens in the corporate world, great. As an entrepreneur, it's pretty tough because a lot of times you start a company, you have no money, uh, you can't pay people, and you're getting people to work uh, on the promise that their equity someday is going to be valuable. And getting past that stage as quickly as possible is critical to success, and that's why revenue is so important. So I would say uh, that's a very non-Bay Area uh, perspective on things because yeah. – uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, what I'm talking about is companies need to be able to make money to be to be sustainable. Yeah, you're, you're saying that people are are getting are being overly funded without with without having revenue initially. <laughs> are you, yeah. You're saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. The lines there. Um, <laughs> um, and there's but, a lot of there's a lot of investors that are just destructive of companies. I think that when you when you raise money, you should really look for your, your investors to, to add value beyond money and be very specific on that. 
You need investors that have done it before. Don't be the first investment they've made. They will learn on you and that'll be an expensive lesson. Secondly, make sure that they have operating experience, that they've been a founder and they've run a company to both exit and failure. So that's a hard person to find, somebody that's actually been, have operating experience. And third, and most importantly, that they believe in you and that they will work with you through the failures. And that's the absolute bare minimum. Ideally, they're gonna know the industry as well because a lot of investors make decisions without really having uh, an understanding of how the market works. But I see a lot of investors, particularly angel investors, just do dumb stuff uh, that really put the company on a, on a uh, downward spiral. Who, who's it like, I'm, I'm always, there's, it, this is kind of like a black and white thing for most people. Either they hate, they don't want to work with investors or they do. And I love I, working I, with investors. I, I absolutely love working with my investors. And um, I would say that even if they don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, no, seriously, like the chairman of my board has sold uh, $3 billion company, 3 billion of uh, his companies that he sold have been collectively worth about 3 billion. Um, uh, Grady already talked about, you know, he had the experience of scaling Facebook. Uh, uh, my partner from uh, rallies is, is, is a more of a, a private person, but he, really has an amazing ability to ask the right questions and get me to think about things differently. And they, and the hedge fund guy that's on my board, you know, we wouldn't have a company without Wade Diebner. Uh, and Wade is somebody that I can always count on to give me uh, a straight story of his perspective. Uh, what's important about investors and board members is you don't have to agree with everything you say. And if you do agree with everything, you're probably not doing your job because my job is to run the company and to know it inside and out. The board's job is governance, and those are different jobs. And investors, when you make early stage company, they may not have a board yet, but you can think of the investors as being playing that governance role. And governance is critical to success. Otherwise, you get things like Thanos and WeWork stories, which had very poor governance. And we know that now because of, you know, they were actually able to hide it long enough to uh, that when it did get exposed, it was so disastrous. Crazy. They had sophisticated investors, but it, all of this went over their head and they had no idea what was going on, you know? Yeah, like, so, uh, uh, like uh, you know, Moss, uh, I'm trying to find a way of pronouncing his name, Masasan at, at SoftBank. He's been a very successful investor. There's no question he, he's, a, he's a brilliant guy and, and uh, made a lot of really good decisions. I think when you're running a hundred billion dollar fund, you know, it's hard to invest every dollar carefully and um, all of us make mistakes and a mistake at that scale is very noticeable. Right? And yeah. So yeah. I, I think that, you know, I, I think uh, SoftBank is probably pretty upset at the way things went. Uh, but I also, we don't know what SoftBank was told and we don't know, you know, there's, there's, there, there are bad people in the world that will do really bad things to really good people. And we don't know the story because we weren't there. But we do yeah. know the outcome was very negative, And we do know that what we do know about the behavior of the executives was, was, was appalling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just, uh, I, so you hear like, so I, I guess, you know, going to my point of, you know, 
working with investors is a black and white concept. No, I think that it really depends on the investors you're working with. Cause I've heard disaster stories of working with the wrong investors and disaster stories on the other end of the investors working with the wrong companies. Yep. So it just, it just really, I think, would you say one of the main mistakes that most uh, companies, most initial companies that fail make is that they choose the wrong investors and, um, and, and those investors kind of from the, from the outset don't have any clue what they're doing and they tend to uh, wrap their tentacles around the daily processes of, of a business and that, that's what makes it fail usually. I, I think that story gets told a lot. I, I do think that's very valid. I think in the reality, if you're really doing something differently, you don't fit into a pattern. And if we look at the really blowout successes um, of, of technology companies, if you look at the Slack uh, would be an example, or Netflix, or Amazon, or just any of the really huge market-changing things, early on, you'd never recognize it, right? Because they were different. Um, they were doing things that were unconventional. And by by that sheer nature, uh, any rational investor would say, ah, no way, man, this, does, this is going to fail. And if you look at what caused them to push through, you know, they didn't have all the answers. You know, Amazon didn't start off saying, oh, we're going to do this web services thing. Uh, Netflix did not start off saying, oh, we're going to uh, spend $20 billion and create content and replace the entire Hollywood studio system. You know, Netflix started off because the guys were pissed off at Blockbuster and they had a bunch of DVDs. So they were stuffing envelopes and sending them to people's homes. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the guy's uh, autobiography uh, is titled, It Will Never Work, which is, that what his wife told him when he pitched the idea to her in the kitchen and having pitched a few ideas to my wife in the kitchen, guess what? My wife is usually right. Right. It's just like my mom. It's, it's it, a lot of times these things aren't going to work. What will work is overcoming and getting up one more time. And that whole idea of success is born yeah. out of failure. Yeah. And that is a pattern that is impossible to recognize at a very early stage of a company. You have to, you have to earn people's respect too. There's there, there's something that should be said about that as well. Trust. Like, yeah. Get back to that. Get back to that trust equation. That that will explain a lot of it. Capability, reliability, competence, self interest. Yeah, and 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 your 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 mom or your wife needs to see that you're you're doing the right thing. Uh, right. Recently. And then they start now, to be very clear. My mom and my wife are very different people. I don't want to juxtapose them that much, but, but certainly, uh, you know, my wife grew up in poverty. Um, and so she put herself through college, graduate school and postgraduate uh, just through hard work. And I think that one of the things that's really important in our lives is to surround ourselves with people that know that hard work can overcome a lot of things. Have you matured regarding your work ethic as you've grown older? Absolutely. There was times in my life my work ethic lacked uh, and I wasn't anything closely to resemble what I am now in terms of work ethic. Um, I don't think that people change other people. I think that people change themselves. And certainly my work ethic now I would hold up to almost anyone. I, I think there's probably some people that have more than I do, but I have a lot. You say you work and, six, 16 hour days? Yeah, no? It, it goes in waves, but 16 would probably be a pretty good average. 
Um, Jesus. I, I think it's pretty important to have some things that are not work-related. So I would say that probably if you balance it over the course of a week, uh, 10 hours a day, every day is probably pretty close to it. So it's about 70 a week would probably be somewhere in there. But, you know, th- some weeks are going to be like this week will be a little bit lighter. Um, you know, I think that a lot of it has to do with building a team and what type of challenge you're overcoming. As a company gets more and more mature, I think what's more important is for me to actually have the time to think deeply, uh, kind of to do those long thought cycles to make better decisions. Early on when you're growing, you know, when you're doubling revenue every, you know, we go from month to month and double. There's no time to think. It's just, oh my God, what do we need to do to execute on this? So I think work ethic changes. Um, and I, in some ways you can th- say I'm always working because some of my best ideas are when I'm not in the office. Some of the best ideas are when I'm, uh, you know, at, at dinner with somebody or on a bike ride or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, they want to email you, uh, how easy, would- I, I'm the easiest guy in the world to reach. <laughs> my, uh, my email is Olin, O-L-I-N at leadcrunch.ai. That's L-E-A-D-C-R-U-N-C-H dot A-I. My Twitter handle is Olin Hyde, O-L-I-N-H-Y-D-E. Um, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and you know I'm really thrilled to be on this uh, uh, broadcast and have to say that I've built some meaningful relationships and hope to build one with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and uh, thank you. I, re- I really appreciate it and I look forward to conversing again and potentially doing another podcast.